Welcome to the Vet Podcast with Mark and Brendan, the Vet Gurus. Don't forget to visit us at vetgurus.com, our new website there. And um, we've had some interesting feedback from our last um, podcast, Mark. We had some um, a few laughs from listeners about our story about Jonathan, the tortoise. I think um, it hit um, hit the nerve with some of our, our listeners there. So thank you for the feedback for that. It is the week ending of... December the 18th. Ah, no, it isn't. December the 8th, 2017. I'm getting excited, Mark, because we've had a little chat offline about our Christmas special, and um, I think it's going to be epic. I think it will go for probably two hours away from where we prattle on um, with things. And I've already got a list of Christmas cheer for everybody. I've got two or three um, fantastic little um, products that you can use in your vet clinic. And I also have two or three um, non-veterinary related things that I think would be um, interesting for people to view. One's a film, but I won't jump ahead of myself. Um, and a couple of other book reviews, etc. I think you've started compiling a few things, haven't you, Mark, for a Christmas special? I have indeed. I think um, much the same as you. There's a, a couple of things that I find really useful around the veterinary hospital. And one thing that I find particularly useless, so it, I'm, I'm always keen to chuck in a particularly damning review um, and uh, and then just a, a, yeah, some movies and uh, books I really like as well. The one particular thing that people would say is useless in my clinic is me, so I'm not going to um, quote any other useless things in my my clinic at the moment or else I'll get into trouble. Um, thank you to all our listeners in a, a big shout-out this week to one of the countries that um, is probably fourth on our list at the moment, and that's Portugal. Um, and I don't think I mentioned that to you, Mark, so we've got a few listeners in Portugal. So hello to all everybody in Portugal, and, and thanks for listening and subscribing to us. And and we're keen, Mark and I are keen to get out there to Portugal to do a live um, podcast from Portugal um, and um, send us the tickets and we'll be out there in a flash. Um, we can do our Christmas special over there. I think that would be good, wouldn't it, Mark? Anywhere in the world would be good to <laughs> celebrate Christmas, I reckon. Yes, it Portugal, would. Okay. Portugal would be great. Yes, I think it would. So, hello to Portugal. Um, it's I, I think our, our country listener number is now up to about 17 different countries. So, we'll do a shout out to each each uh, one of those countries every week, I think, from now on. So, um, don't forget to send us an email if you have a topic you want us to talk about, vetgurus at gmail.com and, yeah, the website vetgurus.com. So, I know you've been really busy, Mark, and, and we're a tad late with actually recording this. We're, we're, we're putting it right down to the wire as far as trying to get it out for the Friday. Um, so, you've had a really busy day, but you've got some really important news and relating to the last episode. Do you want to talk about that, Mark? I do want to talk about it, and, and it, I think it speaks to several very interesting things that happen in my veterinary life, and I, I wonder if they happen in other people's veterinary lives as well. Um, the first thing, uh, the first uh, um, aspect of it that I wanted to draw everyone's attention to is coincidence. Um, I've, I've been um, uh, fascinated by the whole um, Facebook listening on my phone and then sending me ads about topics that um, I've never asked questions about but just spoken to my wife about. And there must be something happening similar in my veterinary hospital because after we'd played, after we'd um, uh, broadcast the podcast about um, our the wonderful rabbit conference you had in uh, Melbourne and the, the focus on uh, uh, flatulence in our lagomorphs, um, it just knocked me over that um, one of my clients, I've never had a, a rabbit client um, talk to me about their rabbits farting in all the time I've been doing this, yet in the week after we broadcast <laughs> it, um, one of our, my really good clients who we've been treating her rabbit for um, several years now for intermittent moderate um uh, gut issues. I, I, I suspect that in the end we will find out that her beautiful bunny has um, has some adhesions and so has intermittent pain and uh, uh, slowed gut function. But she knows he's on the mend. She offered this up completely out of the blue um, at one of his uh, uh, vaccinations. Um, 
that she knows he's on the mend because his farts change. Here I am thinking that nobody even notices when rabbits fart, but she notices that his farts change. Excellent. So, <laughs> so I, I, I have newfound um, admiration for my clients, and I'm particularly uh, um, impressed that maybe there's a whole bunch of things they notice that they don't uh, they don't necessarily volunteer to me immediately the first time we're talking about a problem. So, um, so yeah, it's amazing how our podcast stimulates some uh, some through the ether, through Facebook's secret f- uh, filming and and recording system, whatever it is, um, uh, these things seem to pop up surprisingly coincidentally at the same time. Well, I think there's no doubt at all, Mark, that you have no choice but to present <laughs> at one of our conferences and um, you'll have to talk about the fart index in rabbits <laughs> and uh, um, put a scale, one to five, one to ten of the different types of farts in rabbits and what they mean. So I don't think um, – I think that'll go down really well, um, so to speak. Um, <laughs> we'll leave it at that. Um, so, yeah, that's amazing, yeah. Um, we did have a lot of feedback about um, rabbits and farting, yeah. Um, a lot of discussion at my clinic as well um, on that. In, in fact, we were discussing it so much um, with one of my nurses that um, – I was a bit, uh, we had clients um, building up in the waiting room um, while we were discussing it. So, um, yeah, an interest, a hot topic, as they say, um, a hot topic. So, well, um, we're not going to do any reviews, product reviews this week because um, you, you want to talk a little bit about um, a particular avian species um, that's been in the news or a bit of an update on them. And then we'll jump straight to our main topic, um, which is another avian topic. So um, what's the um, update? of this um, endangered species, Mark? Well, one of the, the um, 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 you know, being a bit of a bird watcher, I'm always uh, um, keen to uh, go on trips. Oops, I think we've just lost you there, Mark. We lost the audio there of you, so plug your microphone in and out again and um, start talking again, and when I can hear you, um, we will um, How we cross going back there? to you. There we ah, there you go, Mark. How's that for um? How's that for um? Doing Te- things on the fly. Technical proficiency. <laughs> um, so you were saying I was uh, yeah mentioning about uh, some of the rare birds that I uh, like to I even um take some of the eco tours to try and chase up and maybe get photographs of. And one of the ones I've been following really closely lately is our orange-bellied parrots, uh, who are at the moment returning to their um their uh, territories in Tasmania in preparation to breed. And and there have been a grand total of three reproductive-aged wild females um, returned to Tasmania this year, um, uh, just three birds. And unfortunately, one of the um, uh, bits of news this week that's been um, – uh, a little bit depressing, I suppose, from my point of view, is that the um, the uh, the most recent bird to return to Tasmania is one that's known as um, as uh, Red Red Z. Um, she fledged on March 22 this year, and she's just turned back up at Melaleuca in Tasmania, where the birds tend to have a rest stop. Um, and um, images of her that have um, have been sent around to people that are following these things pretty clearly show that she has an extensive amount of uh, um, uh, uh, um, dysplastic feathers that are coloured in an aberrant yellow fashion, um, and this makes it very, very likely that one of the newest members of this very small flock of uh you know the 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 last remaining three wild reproductive females um, is highly likely to be uh, suffering from cytosine beak and feather disease virus. So um, the total wild population, the entire wild population of orange-bellied parrots at the moment, numbers sixteen birds. Um, so uh, um, yeah, I I, I uh, hate being the bearer of. Um, 
relatively depressing news, but um, these birds are so special and uh, and they really represent, I know we've touched on a number of times over the last couple of weeks, this concept of zombie species, how we prioritise the resources that we have for, um, for uh, wild animals. Do we um, spend huge amounts of money on the 16 OBPs that are left or are there better things for us to do? But um, just to find out that um, one of the birds that's returned is is highly likely to be suffering um, from beak and feather disease. That's a bit of a depressing bit of news. Yeah, I, I was going to ask you how many um, how many are left, um, as far as we know. And yeah, I knew it was um, incredibly small. And yeah, it's 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 tricky, isn't it? Have you, have you um, actually? Um, seen any um, live um, with your twitching, with your bird watching, or, or, or through contact with vets? No, no, I haven't seen any and that's one of the my plans for next year is to um, possibly get on one of the, the tours uh, that get down to Tasmania and, um, and uh, maybe get a chance to have a view of one of them. Um, they're in, obviously with only 16 birds, they're, they're the restrictions on um, what people can do and how they can photograph them is getting increasingly. So I, if I don't get the chance, I, I understand and respect that. But, um, but yeah, I, I, I worry that if I don't get to see them next year, I might not get to see them in the subsequent years. Yeah, yeah. Yes, it is, um, it is depressing, isn't it? Speaking of depressing, let's get on to something um, that sometimes is – it's not quite as depressing because we managed to get some of these cases um, through, but they can be a real challenge, and that's the main topic of the week. So we're not going to have a, a review, um, a book or a product review this week. We're going to jump straight into the to the main topic. And um, if you um, have downloaded this pod- podcast or subscribed, obviously you can see the title is Yokel, and I encourage you all to have a look at, um, do a bit of a Google search and look up the definition of yokel. Um, and the hint is go to the um, Urban Dictionary definition of yokel. And I think it's quite apt for our next, for our actual topic this week, which is egg binding and um, dystochia um, slash egg yolk salomitis in, um, in birds. And I think this is where it's my turn to interview you, Mark, instead of you interviewing me. You being the the bird I compare with me, although I did see a lot of birds um, in um, in a past life as a zoo vet, and um, I think I got very good at um, looking over the carcasses of dead birds. So I got very good at seeing dead birds um, um, because in a zoo, animals die with those large number of animals that you see there. So I saw a lot of um, did a lot of necropsies on on birds, and I got reasonably good at my avian pathology, I think, um, or my gross pathology, certainly. Um, but I don't see too many too many pet birds these days. I tend to leave it to the other two or three part-time vets I have who have a really keen interest in birds, so I tend to handball them to the other ones, although I do like to see the odd chook. And for, for those of you in, in the US or some areas of the world, you may not realise that a chook is a pet a pet um, chicken, um, very popular, increasingly popular in Australia. So, Mark, the question is, um, what's the most common type of cases you see with these egg-binding dystochias, um, especially given that it's spring here in Australia, um, or, or actually it's almost it's summer, isn't it? Is it summer? Yes. Um, it's just got so. Yeah, we just turned into summer. Um, so what what's... What type of cases do you see? What's the presenting signs with these? Well, the, the, it's this time of year is just like it's almost frantic. We see do see so many uh, of our um, pet birds, in particular, um, show up with these reproductive problems, and without a doubt, the most common uh, presentation are those uh, those birds that are sometimes called um, egg yolk peritonitis birds, or uh, more anatomically correct. Uh, correctly known as egg yolk coelomitis birds, and um, and it it is a, a daily occurrence for us to um, to get to uh, um, talk to someone about these birds at this time of year. It's uh, uh, almost a, a, you know not that I want to bring the tone of this um, whole podcast out, but um, the the 
frequency with which we see them and the um, the uh, absence of understanding in the owners about why it's occurring can be um, a little bit relentless and depressing around this time of year. So so it is a, it's a very topical um, issue for us at the moment. We, we probably see, um, uh, you know, like I said, at least one case a day, and these birds present to us um, usually from, a, a, um, you know, we certainly see a, an, a preponderance of a number of particular species a little bit out of proportion to, you know, their relative number in the pet bird population. Um, so we definitely see uh, um, birds like cockatiels and galahs and budgerigars and particularly you mentioned the infamous chook and we have a large number of clients who have uh, rescued chickens chickens that have spent some of their time the time of their life in production facilities and may have uh, fallen off trucks or uh, entered the pet bird market by some route and uh, and those birds obviously have had um, a year or two of uh of intensive forced egg production under lights and uh, uh, in relatively um, in circumstances that may not necessarily encourage extensive amounts of exercise. So those birds are a, a particular cohort that we see very frequently um, uh, egg yolk coelomitis uh, causing problems for so, yep, it's a real issue for us at the moment, Brendan. We see lots of them, and I'm sure your uh, colleagues who uh, do the the uh, majority of the bird work there down in uh, um, Warrenwood, um, they're probably seeing quite a few of them as well. Yeah, right. I, I must admit I do enjoy seeing the odd chook in my practice, so I do see a few of them personally with the salomitis um, conditions. Um Going back one step, my, my question, next question would be um, how do we differentiate the ones that may be these egg yolk salomitis um, problems or, or how do we know or work them up to differentiate them from the egg binding ones that are just have a dystopia going on there? You know, do they present differently? Um, a, a one, you know, are they acute or chronic? Um, and and how do we start thinking about differentiating um, the different types of um, conditions we have in these um, birds, regardless of which species we're dealing with? Or is there particular species that are more prone to one of those conditions than the other? When we when we do get um, these birds, it's it's an interesting question because we often get these birds referred to us, um, you know, from our neighbouring practices that know we have an interest in this stuff, and they'll often be referred to us as uh, egg binding cases. When um, when those dystochia cases, uh, when there's a, a shelled egg um, that's in the pelvis or very close to the cloaca, um, those cases are. Um, uh, medical and sometimes surgical emergencies, a lot of these um, uh, coelomitis birds have a huge, uh, you know, abdomen. Their abdomen is swollen, um, but, uh, but they often, it develops often very slowly and the birds uh, accommodate significantly. And so it has a much more chronic time course. And there will often be a particular event where the owner has had the bird in an unusual position or um, the bird has uh, uh, done something unusual which exposes the abdomen to the owner. And because it is so uh, um, obvious that it's unusual, that then becomes something urgent for the owner. But it Usually with these egg yolk coelomitis birds, it's been something that's built up for some time. And that's not a big surprise. The whole process, um, the reason that these birds develop this problem is that there is uh, um, some um, either a fault in the transit, so the, the ova or yolk that's produced by the ovary transfers across the short space in the abdominal region of the bird to the opening of the oviduct, the infundibulum. So there's a short period of time where it floats free in the abdomen. And in uh, um, times of pathology, um, that, that yolk may miss the opening or may enter the 
oviduct and then be retropulsed back into the abdomen. Um, and then once it's free in the abdomen away from the, the, um, the infundibulum, it floats around for a little bit until it's traumatized and bursts. And then the, the uh, free fluid of the yolk rich in fats and proteins causes a massive irritation and the the uh, lining of the coelom um, being activated and inflamed secretes a huge amount of fluid. So these birds have a massive ascites. And the key thing um, that we do initially to work these birds up is consider uh, imaging and uh, aspiration, fine needle aspiration. Um, uh, sticking a needle in and harvesting some of the fluid often gives us a clear answer as to its source. Um, the birds tolerate this really well, and uh, and it's such a uh, and it often provides an immediate um, relief. The birds will often. Uh, be in some degree of respiratory compromise as the fluid puts pressure on their air sacs and um, uh, their ability to ventilate those air sacs. Um, so uh, um, uh, aspirating some of the fluid will help give you the, your diagnosis and also provide um, uh, a, a short-term benefit. It does not a long-term treatment and the fluid will re-accumulate if you don't do anything else, but um, it often makes the bird feel better immediately so what's what's the approach to aspirating this fluid just walk us through where you make that um, aspirate from or you take that aspirate from in in the bird to minimize any chance of trauma and then the follow-up question is is this more common in um, particular pet species than others um, and why um, you know, is there a breeding aspect of it? You know, um, is there is there a um, can we track it down to to poor husbandry or, or, or those types of things? Yeah, such excellent questions, Brendan. Such excellent questions. When we well, you did, you did write most of them down for me, so thank you very much. Although I'm, I must take credit for for the last couple because they're off the top of my head. So thank you very much, and, Mark. And, thank and, you. And delivery delivery is important as well. <laughs> Excellent. When we're doing the aspiration, um, we generally, for a, a cockatiel-sized bird, we would use a 22-gauge needle. Um, generally, the birds are in some degree of respiratory compromise, and so in the first instance, we usually are not um, uh, anaesthetizing them, though we may give them um, a dose of uh, an opioid to... Um, to uh, um, give them some degree of uh, relief. They're obviously painful birds. I do worry uh, whenever I use opioids about the, um, you know, the the respirat the problems with respiratory compromise that uh, the opioids are reputed to do. But um, in 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 a practical sense, I very rarely see this as a problem, and particularly with these birds, um, I think the benefits of a little bit of sedation and relief of anxiety and decrease in pain vastly outweighs the very slight risk of um, of increasing uh, uh, problems with the respiratory tract. And so, once they're a little bit calm and we feel that we can gently restrain them, we tend to try and put them in. A relatively normal body position so I'll have one of my wonderful support staff handle the birds with placing them so that um, they're uh, off the ground um, but that they're in an in a sort of standing position so that the fluid becomes dependent and uh, and they're um, and hopefully most of it drains away from the the uh, gas exchange surfaces of the lungs and the um, the structures uh, further up the respiratory tract, making it easier for the bird to breathe. If we do have a bird that is particularly um, stressed about um, being able to fill its lungs, if it's uh, demonstrating open mouth breathing or uh, other signs of dyspnea, then we will uh, give them an oxygen mask during this procedure to lessen the chance that there's um, complications. So. Then we simply uh, look for the most dependent part of the abdomen in the midline. I tend to avoid um, sticking the needle in more laterally uh, because I'm um, likely to uh, go into the air sacs. One of the things that 
I can't say it's a real genuine problem, but I worry that if the the fluid that um, that is that is in the abdomen is while it uh, presses on and closes off the air sacs, it's not in the air sacs. Um, it's in the space around the air sacs and uh, and uh, occupies the space where the viscera sits. If I was to lacerate the air sac lining and allow the fluid to travel from the space that it's in into the air sac, um, I, I, uh, I have concerns that we then could effectively, um, once the bird you know, tips its head down to get some food, um, the fluid could conceivably run into the air sac and then into the lung. So um, we're just a little bit careful about where we place that needle. We try and aim for the midline. Um, generally speaking, the fluid is so there is so much fluid um, that once you go through that uh, most dependent point in the midline in a cockatiel, it's about um, fifteen millimeters in front of the vent. Um, the you um, I, I, per, uh, penetrating the viscera, the intestines, tends not to be a problem. Um, it tends to uh, float away in the fluid. And so usually you've got a pretty good chance to um, just drain that fluid straight out. It's usually straw yellow colored. It sometimes has some flocculent material in it as the um, as fibrin clots form. Um, uh, it's generally um, septic. I've really only had one or two uh, cases where we've um, uh, found uh, uh, large numbers of bacteria and inflammatory cells. Um, generally, it's uh, um, relatively devoid of um, of all that sort of stuff. So, um, so yeah, um, the birds usually feel much much better after the procedure's done. Um, and it's surprising how much in a uh, eighty gram cockatiel we'll often draw off maybe as much as ten or twelve mils of fluid. It could be more than ten percent of the bird's body weight, um, and so it's not a surprise that they uh, um, find breathing much easier after that. And ha ha is it similar similar process in those chickens, or or is it more difficult to aspirate the? The um the fluid there, but being potentially a, a thicker sort of um fluid in in some of the chickens, you, the the typical thing too is that with the chickens will that and this is a really you know the you were talking about the process of establishing a a, um, a diagnosis and and. Um, interestingly enough, the one of the values of um, talking to students and um, trying to write blogs and this podcast in particular for me is that it keeps drawing my attention back to you know those general principles that um, I like to follow. So I have in the past maybe been um, a little bit guilty of uh, getting these coelomitis birds and automatically just going through the protocol um, of uh, slipping into treatment but um, but I think there is a lot of uh, a lot of use to after you've done your um, initial aspirate and taken an image of trying to get a specific answer as much as you can um, and and so more and more frequently we're now suggesting to people that once we've stabilized the bird that um, we're going to consider um, a laparotomy to uh, examine the area um, more thoroughly and identify what pathology is going on and see if we can't correct it. But you are right, the chickens that we get to see frequently have um, more fibrin, more flocculent material. Um, we tend to use a um, relatively larger gauge needle. Um, uh, we tend to uh, um, watch the way that the birds, uh, when they come into the hospital, we watch the position um, that the birds go through. My experience is that they tend to um, move through um, three body positions as the problem gets more serious. So initially, um, uh, the chickens have a head up, tail up, body down. That's their normal you know, every chicken you see running around has that sort of body position. Once they have some, the first episodes of uh, internal laying of of the egg, uh, of the yolk entering the, the coelom, um, they will develop a tail down body position. Their head's still up, 
but their tail will dip down. And that's an attempt to change the position of the abdominal muscles to relieve pressure on the abdomen um, as the birds would stand normally with the tail up. Those ventral abdominal muscles are stretched and if the abdomen is painful, um, they, they will hold everything in tighter and it will hurt more. So they tend to adopt this tail down position as abdominal pain becomes more apparent. But then as the fluid builds up and starts to cause a respiratory compromise, um, the birds tilt their body so that they end up looking a little bit like a penguin. Um, they try to really turn their body into a bit of a flask where all the fluid is down the vent end and uh, not impacting on their their um on their lungs um, and those uh, very seriously affected penguin looking birds need pretty urgent treatment um, but essentially to come back to your question the the uh, the ventral midline probably about um, five centimeters in front of the um, the uh, vent um, uh, and we're um, going in the midline and um, and probably just um, being a little bit more um, careful to not go the full length of the needle in a, a normal uh, one inch 20 20 gauge needle we probably are going in um, about half or three quarters of the length of those needles um, uh, we find that um, the deeper we go in the more likely it is we'll get um, a big chunk of material that clags the needle up and stops us draining stuff out Okay, so you've drained some fluid to um, relieve a bit of the discomfort and, and um, hopefully um, the bird's not going to die on you um, in the next few minutes. What's our next step with it? Just summarise um, summarize briefly maybe um, what, um, what, what aspects we do next as far as potentially working out. What's, what's the prognosis you give to the clients with these ones where you've drained a reasonable amount of fluid there and, and the bod, bird was obviously dyspneic when it came in and it was really struggling? Do you give them a, what, an average prognosis? Yeah, a, it, a we always prognosis? We're, we're guarded. We're, and the main reason we're guarded is that the birds tend to recover well from a single episode but obviously, if we haven't changed the underlying reason for the the you know the disposition, if there's underlying pathology that um, leads to this sort of problem, and the classic one for us is that um, we see lots of budgerigars with this problem that um, have uterine adenocarcinomas, oviductal adenocarcinomas, and um, and of course there's you can repeatedly drain the fluid and perform the other treatments and those birds are going to go badly um, but um, in, in our other um, in our other species that uh, particularly the we see lots of cockatiels and um, and uh, those birds uh, it really does it's a bit of a 50 50 thing there seems to be some of those birds that where um, the husbandry aspects that we talked about before um, that you mentioned in one of the questions, the fact that these birds are on high energy diets, they uh, um, they have lots of petting from their owners. The owners will often provide them with nesting sites. They have lots of external stimuli that's, that cause uh, at least partial um, activation of their reproductive activity, but the fulfillment, um, the mating and the um, uh, aloe feeding, the all those other things that would lead to the more complete um, processes of hormones to end um, with normal ovulation and infundibular activity, they're not there. Um, and so um, that's why we think a lot of these pet cockatiels will have these sorts of problems. And if we can manage those husbandry aspects, if we can decrease the energy levels, the glucose, circulating glucose, um, if we can uh, uh, decrease their uh, preening and reproductive activity with their owner and, um, and maybe lessen the number of nesting sites they have. Not all. Some cockatiels are just driven to lay eggs no matter what happens. And if they lay enough of them like the, the, uh, the production chickens, they will get um, uh, wear and tear pathology, but um, a lot of our cockatiels go pretty well once we treat them. 
So we suck out the fluid. What's our next immediate step for that for the vet? Mark, Mark, I've phoned you up. I've, I've got this bird. I've, I've listened to your podcast. I've sucked out the fluid from this bird. What, what do I need to do next? Well, the next thing is that meloxicam is your friend. Um, the the lining of the body cavity is um, activated. It's it's um, it's working its hardest to uh, remove the irritating material, and the only way it knows how to remove that irritation is to dilute it. And so it's in a, an activated state, an activated secretory state. And if you don't do anything else at this point, once you've aspirated the fluid, uh, it'll probably only take 24 to 48 hours and it, the fluid will return. Um, and so... Uh, uh, relatively um, big doses of non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs uh, really um, are the most effective way at um, shutting off the secretory uh, tendencies of the lining of the coelom. I'm sure that all the people that are listening to us uh, um, probably are across this, but I will just um, uh, mention that we never use corticosteroids despite their excellent anti-inflammatory effects. The side effects in our birds are, uh, are pretty profound and in these circumstances we would uh, it would never be a suitable thing to use those drugs um, despite their powerful anti-inflammatory effects and meloxicam is our friend. Um, like so many situations with our uh, unusual avian and exotic pets, um, relieving the inflammation and pain with um, uh, doses of meloxicam uh, are foundational to um, getting our problems resolved. And antibiotics? To, uh, I, for a long time I was worried that with a um, a, a damaged um, lining of the coelom with large amounts of fluid, uh, various inflammatory cells, direct access. So the, the, it's conceivable that um, through the, uh, in, particularly if we have some of these retropulsion um, oviducts, then you know there's a pathway for bacteria to uh, enter the cloaca and ascend the. Um, oviduct into the vagina into, uh, and ascend the oviduct and get into the abdomen. So I often, when I first started looking at these birds, would give them antibiotics. And of course, I'm sticking a needle in through the skin to the abdomen. But um, it, I, it really just, I don't think this, this is one of those cases where I think um, there's very little justification in using antibiotics in these birds. I do not we currently don't use them now, and um, and it wouldn't be amongst my first. Uh, um, I would need pretty clear evidence that I had infection complicating the recovery before I would use them. Yes. So then, what do we do? The next thing is that we've got to shut down the reproductive system because um, as soon as the bird feels better, um, the reproductive system goes, "Oh, that's great." We feel better. Let's make some more eggs, um, and uh, and so it's of paramount importance that we institute those um, care and husbandry changes as soon as the bird gets discharged. But when they're in hospital, we depend on um, uh, on on our drugs. We depend on drugs, um, and so there's a it's probably a series of a little bit of a hierarchy. Um, that uh, that we follow through with these, we generally uh, start treating them with um, with luprolide, with lucrin. Um, and in my hands, lucrin will uh, very effectively shut down the reproductive tract of these uh, the birds that we're talking about, um, and will buy us between two and six weeks of um, of uh, cessation of reproductive activity. And that is excellent. Um, there's no additional eggs being produced. We've removed the fluid and administered our non-steroidals to decrease the secretion of fluid from the lining of the coelom. And, um, and that uh, really gets the bird to the stage where their system can continue the recovery. We do. Uh, Lucrin is our first choice. Um, there are some birds that... Uh, we use human chorionic gonadotrophin as our treatment. Um, it has a 
a couple of disadvantages in my hands. Um, the first one is that um, you've got to give multiple doses. So our normal protocol with HCG, with Corallon is the trade name, would be to deliver doses on day one, day three, and day seven um, to bias a month or two of no reproductive activity. Um, the other big disadvantage is that um, a certain number of birds, uh, uh, HCG is um, immunogenic in that it stimulates a certain number of birds to develop antibodies to the molecule. And so, you know, if and it doesn't seem to be like a routine predictable thing that on the second or third series uh, course of treatment with Corallon, you'll get a bird that um, becomes non-responsive because it's immune to the the um, the drug. It just seems to happen at, like I had one beautiful olive mutation scaly-breasted lorikeet that I treated with Corallon for, um, for nearly five years um, and clearly had excellent control. And then just um, one spring, we gave the Corallon and uh, it was it uh, had no effect and that bird we had to switch to Lucrin. So Corallon and Lucrin is step one. Um, we love to stick implants, the Deslorin implants, Supralorin, into these birds. They buy us a much longer period of time where the bird's reproductive system is quiescent and that gives it a chance to heal even further. It's also much more cost-effective for the clients. If we've got uh, to give Lucrin injections once every three or four weeks, that quickly builds up to quite a significant invoice um, for your average uh, um, cockatiel in our hospital. Each of those injections probably is going to be about um, uh, between 70 and 100 Australian dollars. Uh, plus the progress exam, and um, so the clients um, are going to quickly, routinely have um, several hundred dollars worth of invoice accrued, um, and that would be enough. You know, one or two months of that would be enough to um, make sure they could um, could afford the whole year that uh, Des Lauren uh, provides. Now, when I talk to uh, my avian colleagues, there does seem to be a bit of um, variation in response to uh, to the Deslorin implants as observed by some people. But that's not generally been my experience. The birds that um, we, for this condition, for, um, uh, for egg yolk coelomitis, when we stick um, implants in those birds, tend to settle down really well and give us an extended period of time where the reproductive tract is not active. And, and that's perfect for us to lead on to the final step. Um, we want to prepare these people for, um, you know, some of these birds uh, that we're treating are going to live for 10, 20, sometimes 40 or 50 years. Um, and while uh, the Deslorin implants are less expensive than treating a bird with Lucrin for that long, um, it, the, the final solution is to consider uh um, salpingectomy in these birds, surgically removing the the um, the oviduct um, and um, solving the problem that way. So, what percentage of them would you recommend take into surgery, um, and how many? What what roughly what percentage of clients would go for the surgery, or do you just recommend the medical treatment over the surgery? So we almost always um, talk to clients about each of those uh, stages and we might simplify it down to short-term short hormone, long-term hormone and, uh, and surgical resolution. We would talk to all the clients about those options and um, we're probably um, that seeing an interesting phenomenon but once we get the implants in, um, and the birds return essentially to normal, that um, the clients see the problem drop off their radar. And that's probably one area that I would um, I would be, you know, after having a review of our cases to talk about this podcast, I'd probably be maybe a little bit more vigorous in following up those birds at the, um, you know, five, six, seven-month period before we get to next reproductive cycle. Um, and uh, and trying to enforce the value of uh, 
uh, a spay at that time. We probably, I reckon our numbers are something like um, one in in 30, one in 30 or one in 40 of the birds that we see um, elect to go to the surgical procedure. Um, and of those, it's probably, depending on the species, but there's, as I said, cockatiels, we probably see a 50-50 split. There would be some birds that we would take to surgery and find something particularly nasty or difficult to treat. Um, and some of those birds would be... Um, uh, euthanized on the table um, and uh, about 50% of them we can only find inflammatory processes associated with the oviductin so removing that um, affects a cure. Um, okay what about our other species the, the chicken the chook um, what's what's the outlook for those I mean personally I find that um, a large percentage of the chickens I see with this um, condition don't do well and they end up um, being euthanized. I think that um, the, there's one uh, we definitely see the the just straight um, yolk entering the abdomen leading to um, ascites and coelomitis but a lot of our chickens, um, uh, I've mentioned a couple of times the retropulsion a lot of our chickens when we take them to surgery actually have um, complete eggs without a shell um, uh, and, and our record is like a full dozen eggs in the abdominal space. Um, and those chickens, you know, for the eggs to get to that stage where they have a yolk and uh, a, uh, a surrounding egg white, um, then they frequently end up, you know, as a caseus. They're not, they don't look like, they look like petrified eggs. They look like um, cheesy petrified eggs. Um, and those eggs have to have gone down the oviduct to nearly the shell gland before they uh, uh, end up back in the abdomen. And I, I, I think uh, there's, uh, um, you know, the, there's propulsive contractions. The oviduct uh, is a massively mobile organ which um, does the propulsive um, uh, um, squeezing, twisting, um, to get the eggs to move down and that peristalsis um, when it reaches a part of the oviduct that has severe pathology will rebound um, and uh, flow back up the oviduct and so I think those chickens that have that sort of problem where they've got uh, two or three maybe a dozen um, full-sized eggs in the abdomen um, those birds are more difficult to solve and you're only going to solve those problems by taking them to surgery and um, and I don't see a lot of those birds resolve medically um, if surgery is not on the table. Yeah um, I must admit we find that we get have a fair percentage of the the chicken owners who um who will stop fairly early on even even before potentially treating um medically um initially just because of costs because um saying that oh i've got four or five backyard chickens um that i keep for eggs and we haven't really touched on and i don't i think we'll leave it for another podcast the whole aspect of of medicating um um birds that are used for producing eggs for human consumption and 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 the difficulties with with medicating and and withholding periods etc um that they'll that they'll fairly early on these clients will will pull the plug and say look it's not worth it um we we don't want to spend time and money on on this particular chicken unfortunately or we can't spend money on it and um we call it a day and and um they decide to put the animal to sleep um so um i don't know whether that's a, a factor that we see we see more of them than than you would in your practice um uh, uh, it's rare that i'd have the clients really willing to to go the whole hog and potentially consider surgery on these chickens um i must admit i, I paint a pretty bleak um prognosis for the ones that potentially we take to surgery and, and listening to what you've just said i i should be um tackling some more of them surgically i think and 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 giving it a go um with those particular ones but yeah it's it, it's um an interesting topic and i think it's one that that these types of conditions that 
that vets even in general practice are seeing these birds with these conditions and they're just not realising that they're seeing the, the sick bird look and it's these um, egg salomitis um, birds that potentially they could um, get a much better outcome with them if they started thinking about the whole process of what's happening and, and, and doing the simple diagnostic steps like you're mentioning, popping that needle in there and, and taking an aspirate from them um, to, to help confirm the diagnosis of them. And there's other things we can do diagnostically wise that we that that, that you, you had on your list that we haven't sort of spoken about things, uh, our blood screens and our imaging, etc. Um, a lot of them I think you can diagnose just on the basics that we spoke about today and, and the drugs that you've mentioned are, are um, ones that can enhance the life of those ones even if they're getting multiple treatments with those particular medications and we can end up having these birds that are living a, a pretty good life um, even though we, we, we might not we may not be taking them to surgery um, for various re reasons and yet that bird's has a reasonably good quality of life, even though we may be keeping up with the implants with them. Um, how often do you, say if we've stabilised, this is the final question, um, say if we stabilised these um, an individual bird with um, the medications and then given it the implant, um, how often are you getting them back, um, that particular patient, to, to reassess that? And do you, as a routine, just implant them again um, every, every few months? or not we definitely send out reminders and get them in um, at about um, um, one month after the implant's gone in uh, six months after the implant's gone in and 12 months after it's gone in well 11 we're aiming to get before that um, 12 month period um, and there would be uh, particularly for some of our for the implants that we're not using for this purpose um, for we'll use some implants for some behavioral issues um, there's some of those birds that we've um, we're now into like our fourth or fifth year of uh, placing implants and uh, um, and you know I've got one eclectus parrot that jumps to mind that um, masturbates furiously on uh, his owner's hair um, and um, and uh, and yeah he's had uh, four years of implants and um, managed to decrease the amount of hair washing his owner has had to do um, quite dramatically so um, yep we definitely set those reminders in our computer system and get the the uh, birds in to try and manage them before the problem gets to the stage where it's disastrous Brendan is sorry mark i had my mic on um, <laughs> i can't um, on mute there and i was i was talking away there yeah <laughs> yeah so i think that's another topic that we could um, split over two or three um, uh, um podcasts and it's one I think we'll revisit again in the future. So, yeah, thank you, Mark, um, for that um, enlightened little talk on um, eggs. Very exciting, very exciting, extravagant and excellent um, podcast um, today. So um, we look forward to you listening to our podcast again. Don't forget to tell your vet friends and your vet technicians and your your vet students, um, we um, want to increase the numbers um, and it's increasing quite dramatically actually over the last couple of weeks. So we're very, very happy that um, we found a little niche um, for this podcast and um, don't forget to send your questions to vetgurus at gmail.com and um, um, visit our podcast for the show notes and the links and that's um, vetgurus.com and um, Thanks for